0: One of the things I I thought about as I was thinking about the beginning of this year, which seems not so far away and then really far away, but um, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, this is, this is going to be hard. And um, I kind of, I thought about that and I I thought about it's kind of like that you're, you, you, we go to Colorado a lot and it's kind of like when you have that hike that's going up a mountain and it's really long, but there's a, waterfall up there you want to see and it looks like I don't know if I can do it that's kind of what this was but it was worth it it's kind of like the waterfall was worth it and I think that's kind of what we um, we feel like so today we're just going to kind of um, wrap things up and um, it's kind of nice that the author did that for us with these four chapters so I didn't have to go back and choose well let's focus on this and that because he did it for us And he said, this is how I want you to to remember David. And this is how I want you to remember this time and what God was doing in David's life and in the life of Israel. So um, as I thought about this, I I thought, well, that's really good. Because even though if you read commentaries, many of the commentaries um, don't like these four chapters, the more liberal-leaning ones. But they don't like this because... Um, they feel it's kind of an interruption in the story of David, because if you go into 1 Kings, the very first chapter, David's still there, and there are still important things in David's life. He's an old man, but there are still important things in his life, and then then comes Solomon, and, and, and what he tells Solomon, and then Solomon um, becoming king, and then him building the temple, and so you have all these things, and I I guess that perhaps they feel like that we've written the obituary before we have the death or something. I don't know, but I love this. I love the way the author has ended this. I love exactly where it takes us. I love that it has an order and an arrangement that guides how we are to look at this. And um, if you remember, um, last week I wrote this on the board, and, and we said this... This is a chiastic, and Lisa's been good to talk about chiastics for us, but this one just fits so perfectly. I mean, everything just fits so perfectly in here. And I wanted to just say a couple of words about that, and don't shut down on me because I know this seems kind of ho-hum. But um, I wanted to tell you that one of the things that I thought was interesting that was helpful for me is that the word chiastic is taken from the Greek letter chi, and it, and that is represented by an X, and so that it shows us kind of what a chiastic is, that it's a mirror, the top is the same as the bottom, and that it starts out wide up here. So up here we have the narrative, and then the list, and then in the middle are, is the, are the Psalms, and the Psalm that that David wrote that that you looked at last week in your in your. Um, study and what was that about david was telling about his life as a warrior kind of that's what the work the lord gave him to do but how did he tell it he told about everything that god had done in the midst of that how god had enabled him to be and so one of the things we said is that's always where we're supposed to be and that how we live before god is what defines how we have relationships and it defines how we live our stories. And so that's not only true of David, that's true of us. That if we are living in our quiet time, in our, in our thought time, in our, our self-world time, if we are living and we're thinking, oh, that isn't fair. Oh, I don't like the way that is. Oh, that person's mean to me. I don't like them. If, that, if our mind is thinking, oh, I, I really want that. If that's where we're spending our time and letting that direct the way we live, it's going to affect our relationships, and it's going to affect the stories in which we live our lives. But if our lives are being informed by God, and we're, we're in his word, as you have been this year, if that is, is kind of where you go after... Even though you you sin in the midst of it, is that if that's where you return to, as David does in this passage, if that's where you return to, it's going to change everything. And that's where we're meant to live. And so I think a chiastic can be very can be a quick way of us looking at. I need to go back there. I'm not thinking correctly. I need to go back to the middle where we are. So, in in all of these things, I think we can. Um, we can kind of hold this before our eyes and, and look at it in that way. Okay, so one of the things that um, when, when one commentator said that, that if, you, if you live your story like this, then, then it doesn't matter where you begin, if you begin here or if you begin here and go to here you're still going to have the same outcome. You're still going to have your life informed by God. Okay, so that's how we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the at 2 Samuel, and we're going to see what we can discover. And we're going to see how David's last words inform this narrative. So that's where we're going to go. Okay. Since we believe that chapters 21 through 24 are the chapters that the author has given us, that we might have this last savory taste of the kingdom as ordered by God under David, then we, by deduction, have to assume that there's something really important here for us to learn, that there's something here that is meaningful. And so if you look at this chapter, it has about everything in it, doesn't it? It's about sin, and it's about God's wrath. It's about judgment. It's about an altar. It's about a future temple. It's about relationships. It's about repentance. It's about faith. It's about mercy. It's about forgiveness. It has all of those big things in it. Every All of those things are in it. But I think that there is a, a bigger teaching here that if we, we try to pull one of those things out and focus on it, we're going to lose this bigger teaching. And I think that what stands above all of this is this is about God's sovereignty and it is about that we need to let our faith find its rest in God's sovereignty, that that's where we're safe, that we can trust him, that that's where we need to put our anchor down and I'll show you why as we go on. So let me pray for us and we'll look uh, at chapter 24. Father, um, thank you for your word and thank you that you are our sovereign god and that all your ways are perfect ways and all your love is a perfect love and your covenant is a perfect covenant and we thank you for this teaching in first and second samuel we thank you for the path you've led us on and we pray that you would let these words take root in our hearts and that in all these things, Jesus Christ would be glorified. Father, would you help me this morning, be faithful to your word, and I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles with you, um, you can open to chapter 24. We're going to kind of, first we're going to tell this story, and then we're going to look at what what are we supposed to learn here. So first I'm going to read to you from verse 1. Of chapter 24. And this is what it says. Again, the, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he incited David against them saying, go number Israel and Judah. Okay. Interesting. That verse 1 sets the, sets the stage for the whole narrative that follows. So verse 1 gives us a whole bunch of information. Notice that we are not told in verse 1 specifically what has kindled the Lord's anger, but we know that it has been kindled by Israel. But what they did, what specific thing, we don't know. We also are reminded that he has been angry with Israel before, and we could go back and say yes over and over and over and over, but... That's all the information we're given about what the situation is. God's angry with Israel, but it doesn't tell us specifically. If you read commentaries, they come up with some ideas and, and of why, but really, I think we're supposed to not know exactly. But the Lord is angry with Israel. Now, the next thing we are told in this packed little first verse is that somehow, because of that, the Lord incited David against Israel. Now, if you go to 1 Chronicles, and we're not going to deal with this, it says that Satan incited David. Um, and I think that's kind of a Job thing. If you went to Job where Satan had to come to the Lord to ask permission to uh, to tempt Job, I think we have some of that same thing going on. But we're not told any more than that. The other thing is that there's much There's much disagreement in commentaries, if you read, about exactly what happened in David's heart. Was there something already in David's heart that was just stirred up? And and insight can be that. It can mean to arouse or stir up. So it could mean that there was something already in, in David's heart. Other commentators say, no, that Satan just planted something in David's heart. To me, I believe... I, I think there was something already in David's heart. I think David had considered this, and it was just stirred up. I think that's what's going on, and I think we'll see that happening. Okay, then then we are told, okay, what was that thing that was in David's heart? And it says that it was to take a census of Israel and Judah. So there we are. we are. We're left with this troubling verse. And one final thing to notice about verse 1 is... That David's unaware that we even have verse one. Okay, so David isn't David isn't active or aware of what's going on in verse one. David's actions begin in verse two. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart would really like to know more than that. Um, and one more thing we're going to, going to find out is that when David asks for this for the senses, he is sinning. Okay, so all of that. Okay, so now we go. To verses 2 through 4, and if verse 1 takes place, so to speak, in the spiritual realm, with David unaware of what has stirred his heart, we now see David beginning to act in space, time, and history. And what we find here is David is doing what his heart is telling him to do. David's doing what he wants to do. So he calls Joab in, and Joab is given the task to do the actual work of census-taking. And it is Joab who gives us in space, time, and history the first hint that something is wrong. Because he comes, when David tells him what he wants him to do, he's not happy with the request David makes, and Joab tries to reason with the king. Okay, so Joab sees something that David refuses to see. He sees that David's demand is not good, and Joab, of all people, Tries to get David's heart focused on trusting God. That's an unusual twist for Joab. Okay, so we have to ask this question What is wrong with a the census then? So there's something wrong with this. What is wrong with a census? Well, more confusion because that question becomes difficult to answer because if we go to Numbers 1, 1 through 3, we discover that God tells Moses to take a census of all the people of Israel, all in Israel who are able to go to war. So a census in and of itself isn't wrong. So we must assume that the reason this was a sin is because of the purpose of David's request. There is something going on in David's heart. And Joab gives us a hint as to what was wrong. It's a lack of trusting God to provide all the fighting men David would need for the battles... God would call him to fight, and this is important. So, if we go back to chapter twenty, uh, yeah, chapter twenty-two that we talked about last week, and we look at that passage, and as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, it, it mainly is about David fighting in wars. And I think that part of the problem when we when we looked at, at those confusing passages where it said. Um, spoke about David's righteousness before God and the cleanness of his hand. I think that mainly was in the context of the arena of war, and and the 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 idea is that he fought God's wars in God's ways, that he fought not for personal vengeance, not for personal gain, but for God and His kingdom, and we saw that especially when when Saul was after him and all of that. That David fought those wars in in. God's ways, but evidently something has changed, and it appears that David, in numbering the men in Israel, was doing so to determine the strength of the army, and to put on notice of their requirement to go. And it was like a draft. and And uh, Kay Gabbard in our in our study took us back to what it said a king was going to be like this is what a king is going to be like and he's going to put put your men on notice he's going to take all of your sons and do all of that well it seems like david is turning into a king like other kings up until now david had always had everything he needed for every battle and that's what the lists show us, because what what do we see in the list? Even when Israel went out and was vastly outnumbered, is that not what we learn? We learn that the exploits of these men were supernatural. This what we see is we get stories of things that are just it couldn't happen unless God was involved. And God, that is because God was always with them. It wasn't numbers that mattered. It was that they were God's army and God fought for them. Now, somewhere along the line, a seed of sin has been growing in David's heart and it was stirred up. And now his heart is turning from trusting God who has always been faithful. And David doesn't even know that he's turning. Now, one other note on this idea of a census, and I think this is really interesting. One commentator expands the idea like this. He says, a census provides the basis for conscripting soldiers and assessing taxes. David's government, which is intended to represent a personal god as the true king, now moves into a faceless bureaucracy. And so somewhere along the line, David has become more interested in names, in numbers than in names. And so that made me think back to those lists of men that David had known so well. Those men, those three men who had gone to the well and gotten, gotten him a drink. David knew these men. These men fought beside him. He knew their names. He knew who they were. They had fought side by side in all kinds of situations. And now it makes this so much larger because it, because now David just wants numbers. And so regardless of what Joab's argument was, he has to go out. The king sends him out, and he comes back to the king after nine months, and he, and he has names, but that's not what he gives to David. It says that he gave to David the sums, no names, just numbers, and that's where we leave David in, in verse 9. However, then we have verse 10. And so something begins to happen. David's heart is stricken within him. And I love this because you know what the word stricken means? It means he was smitten as with a spear. David was deeply wounded. It's as if David has, something's happened. He evidently has gone back to the center. That something has happened in his heart that, that he's gone back and he begins to realize what he's doing. And so he's so deeply wounded that it feels like a spear has gone into his heart. And David cried out to God, and he says, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. So it's important to note that David's taken responsibility for his sin. But another important thing, and I'm sure you talked about this in, in your group, is God doesn't have to send a messenger like he did when David was blinded by his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah, which is so interesting to me that he he didn't even think about it being a sin. And he had to have Nathan come to him and tell him a parable, and he could see sin in someone else in order to see his own sin. But this time, this time David's heart has awakened within him. And his heart has grown tender to his own sinfulness. And no one has to come and tell him that David is, David's own heart begins to tell him. And he, re, and he cries out to God for mercy. And God pours mercy up. God forgives him. But then we come to verses 11 through 14. And I don't think, I don't know about you, but I wasn't ready for this verse. I mean, I've read this before, but I mean, it's so strange because now repentance has come and God has forgiven. But what's going on now? He has to choose his punishment. This just doesn't seem to fit. And so the very next morning when when the um, Gad is called and he's called to go to David and give him a choice, and it's a horrible choice. David is to choose the punishment, which... Must come because of sin, because sin requires justice, and God is a holy God. So, we have these horrible choices. So, how does the the king choose from these three things? Because people are going to die. And so, the way it feels right here is that David sins, people die. Okay, so here we go. He can have famine for three years, but remember, chapter 22, um, chapter 21 was, um, that was about famine. That, that was about the famine that had been going on for three years. We, and Or he can choose to run from his foes um, or he can have three days of pestilence. And David is to consider. Finally, he cries out and he says, I'm in great distress. But he, David says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great and let me not fall into the hand of the man, of." man and and so he is trusting that God's mercy is far greater than any mercy any man would have and he is going to trust the God himself to the God of the covenant So there it is what do we begin to see David is not like other kings he has a mighty king to whom he turns and the very thing that caused David to sin in the first place turning from God and trusting in chariots and horses and men, he says, "No, I want to trust God for everything," and he's leaning on the hand of God's sovereignty. So then we have—I'm um, trying to rush through this because um, the pestilence is sent on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. Some people believe that the appointed time is is when prayers were called. Um, don't know. That's what. Uh, commentator said i don't know what the appointed time means it didn't mean till the end of of the time allotted because god doesn't go to the time allotted so i don't know exactly what that meant but anyway seventy thousand men have died and note that this is only mentioning men not women and children perhaps it is to demonstrate that taking a census of men gives you no control over them that god holds life and death in his own hands and he will determine the span. But there's something else going on. We see God's wrath upon Israel is great. And we go. that drives us back to verse 1 that tells us that God's anger has been kindled against Israel. And here again, I think we see the mystery of God's sovereignty because in the midst of all of this, we see that David is a responsible agent in his sin, but we also see God using that sin to bring judgment upon Israel. And God had always intended to do that. And one of the things we're going to see as we close out here is that God uses all kinds of things, that God in his sovereignty, we, we're we just not going to believe how many things are going on. And and I remember one time that this godly man was, he was at a conference and he was staying at our house and, and he was just such a godly man and it was during a sad time in my life. and And he said to me, God never wastes an emotion. And I and I think that in everything that goes on, God's always doing something else. And what seems like on the outside isn't all that's going on. And that's why we have to trust in God's sovereignty. And that's what we see now. Because here comes the sin upon Israel, 70,000 killed. We see further evidence that in this, in the mysterious hand of an angel outstretched to Jerusalem with the plague and and just going on. And and this plague is being spread by this angel. But the Lord in his wrath remembers mercy. And before the appointed time, God stops the hand of the destroying angel. And I love the way it's put in scripture. It says, enough. It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the text is careful to tell us the exact place that the pestilence was stopped. It was by the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite, who were the original people when David came in and um, took Jerusalem. But as the spiritual conversation is occurring between God and the angel, and I don't know the time frame where it's not clear, another action was taking place, and David saw the angel whether it was a vision, whether it was a reality, I don't know. But what we're told is that David saw the angel striking the people, and he cries out to the Lord, Behold, I have sinned, I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. And so there's so much to see here. We, we see God in, in mercy. in in the midst of his wrath that mercy overtakes us that his hand stopped the avenging angel and it seems God stopped it before the allotted time but there's more we see because David is awakened to the heart of a true king because a true king lays down his life for his sheep now, what we have to understand about David is in asking to lay down his, his life for the sheep, it's a wonderful thing. It points us to the true king who will come. But David needs sin covered of his own. David is a sinner. We need an unblemished lamb. David is not that. David does not have the currency to lay down his life for the people. He can't do it. And so, but we have him pointing to that true king to come. And that, that David has learned that sin is costly and requires a sacrifice. And he has learned that as the shepherd of his people, he does not find them to be faceless pawns. His pawns, his heart is broken as he sees his sheep dying. And David did not, and David then begins to bow before the Lord. And we begin to see as the story ends, and I'm wrapping up here. So we begin to see this story being wrapped up that God in his sovereignty has invited us to see a glimpse of his mighty hand. And he lets us see some of the mystery, but he doesn't explain it all. In some ways, if we didn't have verse one, it would have been a different story, but we have verse one and God wanted us to have it. And I think it is meant to leave us with lots of unanswered questions. I think it's meant to say you have to trust God. But I also think hidden within this mysterious glimpse of the sovereignty of God is the wonder that we see he's working in all kinds of ways because what has he done? He has deepened the king's faith. There was something in David's heart that needed to be weeded out and it was something big. And David's faith was tested. It was the perfect test. Because what do we find? David is broken, and he bows before God. It was probably at this point that David, in asking for that census, it was probably he had to be in a place he had never been before because this sin seems so much deeper. Um, And so we get to see, and we don't understand, the mystery of the way God's sovereignty worked. We don't understand, well, was was Israel, what was Israel being uh, punished for? What was David? Was it, We just have all these myths, um, mysteries le- um, left out before us. But again, what we do have is that God has made covenant with David and it's a covenant he would never break. But God needed to break David's hold on any idol that would weaken God, David's trust in God's promise. And the place where we leave David is at an altar, a place of sacrifice. And we find, and the, we walk away from David as he is bowed before that altar in worship. And that's where the story ends. That's a beautiful place. That's where we're all supposed to be, that we bow before God's altar. And the story of this place of sacrifice would continue. Because this is the place Solomon would build the temple where millions and millions and millions of sacrifices would be offered by millions and millions and millions of sinners. And it would continue for centuries. And maybe we talked about this in in the leaders group, but the interesting thing is, they may have talked about it with you, is that this also was the spot. Mount Moriah was the spot where Abraham had offered up Isaac, and God had provided a sacrifice. And we see all of these beautiful teachings just coming together, and yet this would not be God's final answer, just as David was not God's final king. And we know there came a day, centuries later, when the final sacrifice would take place, and God knew from all eternity that that day would come that God's wrath was about ready to be poured out and it would be poured out in its full measure. And this time there would not be a voice that cried out, stop, it is enough. This time God would not provide another sacrifice. The altar this time is a cross and the sacrifice does not come from David or from Abraham or from millions and millions and millions of sinners. The sacrifice this time comes from God. And it is not a ram or a bull. It is the king of kings. It is God's beloved son. And my friends, it is here where God's sovereignty shows its greatest mercy. It is here, if ever there was a reason to cry, why, Lord, it is here at the altar where the Lamb of God died in our place. It is here where the true king, the unblemished lamb, would lay down his life for his sheep. And I think we are left with this question. And I think it's a question for us in our lives today, but, and one we will need to answer many times in our life. Will we trust God in his sovereignty? Even when it comes to the darkest clouds of our life, will we trust him when his sorrows pour forth its fullest force into our, house, into our hearts? Will we be found in those moments, in the place where David was, in worship, trusting in God's sovereignty. That takes us back to David's last words. I think this is where we're supposed to return in in these four chapters, David's last words. It says that for a reason. These aren't trivial words. These are words to remember. Perhaps these were the words that were on David's heart as he bowed before before that altar. Perhaps these were the words that that he bowed and, and, and he was thinking as he bowed before God, before all of these deaths that were all around him, that he remembered that the promise that God had given him, that God had made him an everlasting covenant. You know what that everlasting covenant was? It was Jesus. That was the covenant he had made. It was that he was building a house for David that a true king would come. And that true king was Jesus. It is the same promise that we have. Jesus is our covenant promise. It always has been. It is always, Jesus, the place where we go back. And so we can say, he has made with us an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. And I just think, as I, as I close, I think it's appropriate that we would end here with this, this chapter that we would have as we begin Holy Week, that we get to walk through and remember, as David bowed before that altar, that we get to go through all of this and remember that, that death is never God's last word, that resurrection is. And that's where we will end on Sunday. Let me pray for us. Father, um, your word, your story, your sovereignty, your son, thank you. How do we say thank you? We praise you, we adore you, and we pray that you would always take us back to Jesus. And we pray in his glorious name. Amen.